0: David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is P.A. Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, David McCullough discusses his book, 1776. David McCullough, author of 1776, if there was some moment, some scene in your book that you would desperately have loved to have witnessed, what is that? just one you can pick a couple just of them. one
1: well i would love to have uh, been on board one of the british ships in the harbor at boston the morning uh, they woke up and looked out and saw that the guns from ticonderoga had been put overnight on top of dorchester heights and what uh, amazement consternation anger bewilderment and uh, sense of uh, we better get out of here fast permeated on those ships Um, but maybe most of all i'd I'd love to have been uh, on the east river on the brooklyn side the night that uh, washington and the army escaped from brooklyn after the uh, disastrous defeat in the battle of long island it was the the dunkirk of uh, the revolutionary war and and there was so much going on. It was so, uh, such an incredible feat uh, with uh, nature and uh, uh, raw courage and ability all combining to uh, make possible the survival of the Army in Washington and, I think, the Revolution. If things had gone diff- differently that night, I think it would have been over. Uh, if the wind had been out of a different direction, if, uh, if the river had been too rough to cross if the British had found out what was afoot and descended on the army with all of their um, power and, and numbers. It's, uh, it's like something out of a, a, a fable or, or, or leg- legendary uh, uh, miraculous event from far, far back in time. It, but it really happened with um, the wind changing exactly when it was needed and a providential fog set in and protected the remainder of the army that hadn't gotten off yet as daylight was coming. And then the extraordinary performance of John Glover and his uh, marblehead fishermen, his a unit from Massachusetts, who manned all the boats that they just rounded up uh, overnight, grabbing them wherever they could from uh, along the shores of the Hudson and the East River in New Jersey.
0: Now, for people who are not familiar with that setting, what was Washington's army doing there and and why did they have to escape? Well, the British had sent across
1: uh, from uh, Britain and from elsewhere, uh, all together, an armada of all together 400 ships. There'd never been anything like it. It was uh, the greatest military force ever sent across the waters to uh, conquer a distant foe. Uh, Nobody in the 18th century, not even the British themselves, had ever seen such an armada. And the spectacle of those ships sailing into New York Harbor is one I would give a very great deal to have seen. They landed 32,000 troops on uh, Staten Island, and 32,000 troops was an army larger than the entire population of Philadelphia at the time, which was then the largest city in the country. So it was a massive force, and they then proceeded to land on Long Island and Washington divided his army against a superior foe, which is a mistake you don't make, and sent half of them over to Brooklyn to try and hold Brooklyn against the British. And what resulted was the Battle of Brooklyn in which uh, Washington and the army were outflanked, outsmarted, outfought, outnumbered, and they were trapped on what is now Brooklyn Heights, and there was no, um, no way to escape except back across the East River. And if the wind had not been out of the Northeast, it would have been very easily, very easy for the British to have brought two or three of their warships up into the river, and there would have been no escape for Washington and his army. But they decided in the middle of the night, night of August 29th, uh, that uh, they, they better make a try to get across, get back. And it was incredible. Uh, an organized retreat by an experienced army when faced with a, an overwhelming opposition is the hardest of all military maneuvers. And here was a ragtag army of amateurs, truly uh, farm boys from Connecticut and elsewhere who had no experience at all. They are about as green as troops could be. And they brought it off. They did it. And the British never caught on. When they went down to the river to try to cross, the water was so rough they couldn't get across. So the same favorable wind, favorable to their benefit, uh, was also a handicap in that they couldn't get the boats across. And all of a sudden, the wind stopped. The wind dropped. It wasn't exactly the parting of the Red Sea, but it was pretty close to it, and they could take the boats across. But because they were delayed at first, because of the adverse currents and rough water, uh, they were late getting everybody across, and it was starting to get light, and they still had a lot of the army to, to evacuate. And if the daylight came up and the British saw this, then they would have pulverized the, the remaining men on the, on the beach, so to speak. But at that point, in comes a providential fog so thick you couldn't see six feet ahead of you. And yet there was no fog at all over on the New York side. Now, if you you wrote that in a novel, uh, your editor would say, no. (laughs) Things like this don't happen in real life. But it did happen. And they got 9,000 men, all of their equipment, cannon, horses, everything, across that river without a single loss of life. Unbelievable. And it saved, saved the army, saved the American cause.
0: You said that Washington violated the, the, one of the major rules of war in dividing his army. And in the book, he does that a couple of times, or th- two or three times. Did, did yes, it ever he, work? No. Never worked?
1: Well, no, it doesn't work. But he kept doing it. He kept doing it. Well, he, he had some cause that this, this time, first of all, he couldn't really defend New York. If he didn't have control of the water... We had no navy, we had no warships. Here you have this massive British navy coming in, taking over, and you're on an island. Uh, there's not much you can do against that kind of force, that kind of power. Uh, you know, a couple of their ships had more cannon than we would had on the on the entire island to defend uh, New York. It was a political decision, and Washington was a political general, which we ought to remember. And thank goodness he was a political general because he never forgot who was boss, Congress. And he always deferred to Congress again and again, sometimes when he shouldn't have, shouldn't have bothered. Eventually, Congress turned over complete control to him. They made him a virtual dic- dictator. And the wonderful answer is he said, "As I t- took up the sword only because there was no other choice to defend my country. I will put it down again as soon as there's no more cause to have it. And that's exactly what he would do when the war was over. He would completely abdicate, turn back all power of his command to Congress. And that had never been done before in history. When George III uh, got wind that Washington might do this, from Benjamin West, uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, the painter who was then living in London, it was the court painter, to uh, the king Uh, when Benjamin West told George III that Washington might do this George III said if he does that he will be the greatest man in the world and one of John Trumbull's great paintings in the rotunda of the Capitol in Washington is of Washington relinquishing his command. It's in the tradition of Cincinnatus, the Roman hero who after conquering commanding the conquering army then gives up his his command and returns to the plow. It, it returns to the farm.
0: When you were working on this book, and George Washington is so much of a focus of this book, did you look at it and say that he was just too good to be true? No, because
1: he was very much of a human being. He, he had failings and weaknesses. He, he wasn't a brilliant general. He made some brilliant moves. But he wasn't a great general in the way Napoleon was, let's say, or uh, other commanders down and through history.
0: Did he study military history? How did he, <coughs> how did he learn to be a, a general?
1: He, well, he fought He fought in the French and Indian War. He learned by experience. Experience was his great teacher all through life. But when he took command of the, of the American Army, what became known as the Continental Army, in the summer of 1775 at Boston, he was all of 43 years old. He wasn't the white-haired fellow with the awkward teeth that we're familiar seeing in paintings and on our money. He was a 43-year-old young Virginia planter who hadn't really done anything militarily for 15 years and who had never commanded an army in battle before in his life. And he had a lot to learn. And he knew that. He warned Congress that he wasn't fit for the job, he wasn't up to it. But he also knew that he was more up to it and more fit for it than anybody else they might choose. So when they did choose him, John Adams put his name in nomination before the Continental Congress in Independence Hall. Uh, he knew that he, he had to accept it because there was as, as, limited, as, as many limitations as he had. Uh, he was more suitable for it than other people, in large part because he came from Virginia. The army at that point was virtually all a New England army at Boston, keeping, keeping the, the redcoats, the British, penned up in Boston. Boston was under siege. But the people who voted these decisions here in Philadelphia at the Continental Congress knew that you couldn't just have a New England army. You had to have that army be representative of all of the colonies, all of the would-be states. And so by picking a Virginian, that gave it a geographical balance. And they could not have picked a better man. Uh, they were absolutely right, uh, as um, as time would tell. He wasn't a great orator. He wasn't an intellectual the way Jefferson or Franklin or Adams were. But he was a leader. And he learned from experience. He knew how to spot talent or ability in his younger officers and give them their head, give them the job. He had absolute integrity, tremendous physical courage, and he would not quit. He would not give up, which may in many ways have been his most salient strength.
0: Why was he a rebel?
1: Because he believed, as most of them did, that the United States that we Americans should run things ourselves that we should control our own destiny that we should elect our own representatives that we should not be at the bidding and the, and the dictates of of the king or parliament and uh, once uh, the call for independence became more pronounced which didn't happen until 1776 and once uh, The the noble ideas and ideals of the Declaration of Independence were, in currency, so to speak. He was all for it. He never, he never lost sight of what the war was about. And it wasn't for him. He was an ambitious man, ambitious in that he wanted to make the most of himself, and to and for, and ambitious to excel, as they said in in that day. But he wasn't looking for power for himself. as as he demonstrated, by relinquishing power in the most dramatic
0: and conspicuous fashion. Uh, You have a scene in here at uh, Kipps Bay, I guess it is, in New York, where uh, there is fighting going on, and you say, in a fury, talking about Washington, in a fury, he plunged his horse in among them, trying to stop them from fleeing cursed violently he lost control of himself by some accounts he brandished a cocked pistol in other accounts he drew his sword threatening to run men through you also have him riding through battle with bullets flying around and well first of all did you ever get the feeling he was bulletproof? and <laughs> and second of all if if he had been killed in the battle would that have been the end of the revolution just if he himself had died that scene <clears throat> is terribly important it seems to me because he, he loses it
1: uh, He's, he's lost control of himself. His anger, his frustration, his disappointment in these troops, who are being cowards, they're running in the face of the enemy. And there, were, there weren't all that many of the enemy. Uh, was to him inexcusable, intolerable. And when he saw his own officers, not just the men running like rabbits, it just... And he plunges in among them and he starts using his whip and cursing and so on, the rest. And it must have been something to see. Uh, and he very nearly gets himself killed or captured. And I think, yes, if he had been killed or captured at Kipps Bay, that would have been the end of it. It would have been over. I think that if he had been killed or captured or quit at almost any point through this year and in other years that followed... that 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 would have been it there really was no one to take his place eventually nathaniel green who was one of the young men that he saw ability in right at the beginning would become uh, perhaps a better tactical strategic general green was brilliant Um, and washington said that if anything ever happens to me green should take charge but that doesn't Green doesn't really emerge that way until he is sent to fight the war in the South, which comes much later. What what many people don't realize is how long the Revolutionary War was. It's the longest war in our history, except for Vietnam.
0: How and long did it run?
1: Eight and a half years, and uh, and it was bloody. It wasn't sort of a nice costume pageant with lovely 18th century people in their satin breeches and their powdered hair preening around. Uh, on stage, uh, 25,000 lives—American lives—were lost. Well, 25,000 lives, proportionate to the population, was a terrible toll. Uh, there were only about 2,500,000 people in the country in 1776. If uh, if we were in a war today, if we were fighting a revolution today, and the losses were comparable proportionately, it would be over 3 million people. So, and it wasn't, of course, just the soldiers who suffered. It was their families and loved ones at home. The, uh, the diseases they spread—typhus, uh, typhoid, epidemic dysentery, smallpox—spread through the civilian populations too. It was a um, a very dark time. In fact, I think, and others this too and have said so. 1776 was the darkest time in the history of our country. The prospects for the future prospects of the United States of America never looked so bleak.
0: What would have made the soldiers stick around, stay with the army? There were desertions, but but some of them stayed at a time like that after they lost all the battles. Well, a the great, a very
1: great many didn't stay. Uh, there's a, there was a point in December when things were about as bad as they ever were when the enlistment of 2,000 men came up, and they 2,000 men marched home with no sense of uh, a moral obligation to stay on. But some did. Like Washington, they wouldn't quit. And at one point, there were only about 3,000 men left in the whole army, 3,000 men against an army of over 30,000. And in fact, uh, any... Rational person, and there were many looking at the situation who said the war is over and we've lost. And many who said the war is over and we lost didn't quit either. Why? Loyalty to Washington, loyalty to their buddies, their fellow soldiers, tenacity, um, faith in the cause, faith, fervent belief what they were fighting for
0: at what point did did the soldiers or the generals or the, the citizenry start thinking of this as our nation as opposed to the colonies or individual states when did they start thinking of the idea i don't think there a- is any one point you could say that it was the signing
1: of the declaration of independence but i don't think that's quite accurate uh, john adams said that the american revolution began well before any shots were fired at lexington or concord because it began in the hearts of the American people. They began to see themselves as different from Europeans, different from their uh, English uh, b- brethren back, uh, back in the British Isles. I suspect that one, one could make a case that it began with the victory at Trenton. Not that that was a great battle in numbers or in military uh, uh, magnitude. It was a psychological victory, a, a victory for American morale. That's why it's so important. Suddenly, people who had been with, with the army in spirit, or with the cause in spirit, but discouraged about there being much chance for the cause to succeed, got the idea, maybe, maybe we might win. We can beat these people. We've shown we can beat them, and maybe we might beat them again.
0: What happened to Trenton? How was Washington able to win?
1: Total surprise. Uh, He came down from the north. He'd crossed the Delaware McConkey's Ferry. This is the Washington's Crossing Washington's Crossing, the Delaware. Terrible night, northeaster storm, sleet, rain, snow, bitterly cold. So cold that two men froze to death on the march down to Trenton. They were the only American fatalities of the of the night of the, of the next day, but that's a pretty good indication of how cold it was and how poorly clothed they were, and many were yes, truly as yes, legend has it, uh, in, in bare feet in the snow and slush, and um, they struck at the, early in the morning, and and the Hessians were not drunk uh, as led some stories would have it or hung over from celebrating Christmas the day before.
0: Or taken by surprise.
1: Well, yes, they were taken by surprise. They'd been warned that there'd be an attack, but they didn't think there'd be a big attack, and they didn't think it'd be a big attack in such foul weather. And uh, and out of this terrible storm charges an American army. It was all over very fast, and uh, a total decisive victory. But what compounded the moral impact, or morale impact, I should say, not moral, of this victory was that instead of then turning and going right back to to the uh, uh, Pennsylvania side of the Delaware, Washington followed up uh, very quickly, uh, and a few days later, uh, on, in the new year of uh, 1777, the first week, he followed up with a big end run um, around the, the route around the, to the south uh, and to the east, little known route, and struck at Princeton, where again he won. So it was one victory on top of the other in a very short time. Now these were, I repeat, they were small in, in scale. But in terms of their effect on morale, in terms of the impression it made on the, on the enemy, the British, and the Hessians, they were very large.
0: Did he get to be a better general as time went along
1: yes. or was he just lucky in those yes. days? Yes. He did. And he had, they had people coming in like von Steuben and and uh, Lafayette and others from Europe who improved the the general tone of the of the officers. Washington and his and his best officers saw right away that what the real problem, the real problem of the Continental Army is they ne- needed better trained officers. The officers were often nearly always, elected by the enlisted men, by the militia men, or by the the uh, troops that had volunteered. And uh, they they had no more uh, military skill or knowledge or uh, experience with command than the enlisted men did. Two of my favorite characters, whose letters or diaries that I've drawn on heavily from my book, uh, were... Massachusetts uh, Ipswich, Massachusetts shoemaker named Joseph Hodgkins, and a Connecticut farmer named uh, Jabez Fitch, and uh, they they were they were as much men in the ranks uh, as anybody else, though they were also called lieutenants. And it's in their diaries and letters that you get a great, direct, vivid, entirely genuine feeling of what it was like to have been in their shoes, uh, to have been in, through that experience. We had no idea how those men suffered, how, the, how horrendous, unrelenting the struggle was. It wasn't just they had a few bad days, or they had a few snowstorms they had to contend with, or a few uh, uh, long, uh, wet, muddy, sloppy roads to march down. That's virtually all they had week after week, month after month.
0: Are you able to get copies of those diaries or the originals and sit and read them?
1: Yes. See, they read the originals. Does it sometimes, take you a while to adjust? Sometimes, sometimes they're, they've been published, so it's not necessary to see the original, though when possible, I like to. Sometimes the handwriting is very difficult to understand, very Ill- Ill- illegible, not just because they didn't necessarily have the best handwriting, but because they were being written under such adverse conditions. The wonder is that they took the time to write them at all. And I feel that people like Jabez Fitch and Joseph Hodgkins were doing an enormous service to their country by keeping those diaries and writing those letters in addition to fighting the war, because we have their account of what happened. Some of them also are memoirs that were written after the fact. There was a wonderful memoir by a man named John Greenwood who signed up as a little boy, 16 years old, but he was very small for his age and looked younger. And his memoir is marvelous. Another was Joseph Plum Martin, again, a young boy, a teenager uh, from Connecticut, who wrote another especially uh, colorful and and, uh, candid uh, memoir. (laughs) The value of these is is beyond description.
0: Are there people in this book, characters in this book who who should be more famous than they are?
1: Yes, indeed. Nathaniel Green. Everybody should know about Nathaniel Green. Everybody should know about Henry Knox. I think that uh, the, uh, the role they played... Nathaniel Green, for example, on the fourth day of January, from Boston, was a New Englander, a man who had no more than about a fifth grade education, formal education, but who never stopped learning, never stopped uh, reading, who had signed up to fight in the war and was made a general at the age of 33, despite the fact that the only thing he knew about warfare and army life and military practice was what he'd read in books. And he was a Quaker. And he was a Quaker who had a severe limp uh, left from a childhood injury. So by the standards we're accustomed to, he would have been uh, exempt from From military service and that man uh, was very quickly recognized by Washington as the as the best he had and on January 4th 1776 a few days after they get word that the King of England has given a speech in which he says we're going to come up and we're going to crush this rebellion because you are you are in rebellion and your leaders are traitors and that signaled to us, a speech that had been given in October, but it took all that while to reach Boston, that signaled to us that it wasn't going to be a minor family squabble that would be patched up quickly, and that the king meant business, and this, we were in, in the fight uh, for keeps. If you said, I'm for independence, or I want to declare independence, you were committing treason, and very few people said it on paper. Said it in writing in a letter they would sign. They might have talked about it, but this wasn't something you openly acknowledged or left a record of. Nathaniel Green wrote a letter to a congressman from his state of Rhode Island, Samuel Ward, here in Philadelphia, saying it is time for a declaration of independence. This is long before people here in Philadelphia are saying that. And, um, that is, is expressive, it seems to me, both of conviction, farsightedness, and courage. Uh, he meant business, this young fellow. And his, write, his letters are marvelous. His, his thinking is so clear. When he makes a terrible mistake, we were talking about Washington making mistakes. Green made a horrendous mistake in thinking that Fort Washington in New York could be defended uh, successfully that they could hold out in Fort, Fort Washington. Told Washington to that. Guaranteed to Washington they could hold out. Well, they didn't hold out. And it was the biggest surrender of of the war. Over several thousand of American troops just surrendered, made prisoners, along with all their war materiel and cannons and the like. Terrible blow. A lesser man than George Washington would have fired Nathaniel Green or would have blamed Nathaniel Green for this disaster washington didn't blame him and didn't fire him because he knew how good green was and he knew that green too like george washington would learn from experience so i think that's another reason to know about green because he wasn't perfect he did make mistakes but he overcame the mistakes and he had the confidence of the man who was in command of him uh, and that too of course made green forever as loyal to washington as anyone could possibly be And Henry Knox, you mentioned? Henry Knox, too. Henry Knox was a big, fat, garrulous Boston bookseller, 25 years old. No experience, again, like Green, no knowledge of military matters except from what he'd read in books. But you have to remember that was an age, age of the Enlightenment, when people believed their depths, that there was nothing you couldn't learn by a close study of books, that books weren't a bad place to go to find out how to do things. And um, Knox came to Washington with this outlandish idea, why don't we send, a, send an expedition off to Fort Ticonderoga, hundreds of miles distant, upstate, upstate New York, and haul those cannons that are there back to Boston and put them up on top of Dorchester Heights, and that will drive the British out of Boston. It was a preposterous idea. How are you gonna haul all those cannon across the Berkshire Mountains in the dead of winter? What's so interesting is, is that the idea got from Knox, who was a nobody at that point, all the way to the commander in chief, Washington, within a few days. And Knox came and presented the idea to Washington himself. Washington said, I like it. You're in charge. Said, take your brother with you. Your brother was brother was 19. These two young men set off, and they pulled it off. They did it. They hired teams of oxen and men to drive the oxen. They built giant sleds. They made the problem of winter be the solution to the problem of winter, that they would drag these sleds, these cannon, on sleds over the snow. And they hauled them over the Berkshire Mountains, more than 300 miles all the way to Boston, put the guns up on top of Dorchester Heights in one night, which was a phenomenal uh, feat of ingenuity and determination, and organizing people in, into to, to the sheer uh, magnitude of manpower to get them up there in one night, totally surprised the British. British wake up, see the guns on Dorchester Heights, and know they've got to go. So it isn't just that this new American way of life that's emerging offers, offers opportunity for the individual. It offers opportunity for ideas. That kind of an idea, if born in the mind of a very junior officer far down in the in the order of command in the British Army, would never have gotten to the top like that. And even if it had, probably wouldn't have been uh, taken as seriously as it was. Because well, if you're all new to fighting a war and almost anybody's ideas worth listening to and maybe even trying and uh, that is an important clue to how and why eventually we uh, we triumphed we won the war
0: Can i take a minute out from this to ask you a little bit about yourself you are a uh, native of pittsburgh i am proudly how long did you live there Well, I
1: was born and raised there, went to school there until I went away to college. And after I finished college, I kept going back, but I never worked there. I found my first job in New York, and and I've worked in New York and Washington and other places elsewhere uh, because of my career, because of my uh, writing. But um, I am about as ardent a Pittsburgh man as you'll ever meet, I think it's one of the greatest, most interesting cities in the country. For people who have never been there, what what's the appeal in Pittsburgh? It's beautiful. It's uh, topographically beautiful. It's like San Francisco. It's hilly and three, you know, two great rivers combining to form the Ohio. The uh, the uh, wealth of, of cultural amenities, uh, wonderful symphony orchestra terrific art museum terrific natural history museum great libraries the, the mother church of all carnegie libraries is there uh, very friendly people wonderful sports town for anybody who loves uh, sports of all three terrific universities one of the greatest medical schools medical uh, f- facilities in the world is now the transplant organ transplant capital of the world and its history is extremely interesting i think that's i know that's one of the reasons i i got interested in history uh, early in life because there was so much going on around and my family my parents grandparents would talk about things that they had seen things that they knew about in the olden times and uh, i was i was hooked Mm -hmm. um I, gr- I, w- I was growing up in the midst of the Second World War. And the Pittsburgh, and the Pittsburgh of that time was that bleak, sooty, fiery, uh, noisy, exciting city of its old reputation. And the skies would be red at night, pulsing red with the uh, blast furnaces going off. Where in the city did you live? I lived in the East End, right right in the city. And in school and at home, at the dinner table, conversations at the dinner table—that was back when people had dinner together and talked together. Uh, we were t- all told as youngsters that that we're making the steel to make the war equipment to win the battle with uh, the Nazis and the Japanese. That Pittsburgh is exciting. That Pittsburgh is important. And we went out and collected scrap for the war effort. And. and uh, so while people hearken back to how dirty it was and how full of soot and smoke and grim, I thought it was great. And I have very happy memories of growing up there. And, of course, I never knew anything else but that. I thought
0: that's the way the world was. Well, I have a couple of your books here, and I want to just get you to talk about them very briefly. This one is from quite a few years ago on the Johnstown Flood, a Pennsylvania yes. book. Was this your first book?
1: My first book came about almost by chance. I was working on some projects for the U.S. Information Agency in Washington. It was during the Kennedy administration. And, and the agency was then being run by Edward R. Murrow. And I was up in the Library of Congress doing some work. And I just walking by a big table in the old prints and photographs division. And there were a whole set of photographs spread out that had been taken by a Pittsburgh photographer soon after the... Uh, Johnstown Flood. He'd gotten his old glass plate equipment over the mountains and down into the uh, beleaguered city. And I stopped to look at them, and I was so stunned by the violence and the destruction as revealed in those photographs. I thought, I, I, you know, I'd heard about it all my life, but I didn't realize it was that bad. It was that horrible. So I took a book out of the library just to read about it, and it was very inadequate. And I I saw that the, the author didn't even know the geography. I at least knew that. And I took another one out, and it was, of anything, less satisfactory. And uh, I thought, why don't you try and write the book about the Johnstown flood that you'd like to read? So that's, that was my first book.
0: How hard was it to sell it?
1: Not hard at all. Because there hadn't been a book on the subject. It was the worst disaster in the history of the country up until then was just about exactly the same number of people who were killed at the World Trade Center on September 11th. And
0: uh,
1: with a lot of aftermath as to what what went wrong, who was to blame, all of that.
0: I don't know if I have these in the right sequence, but uh, there is this book on the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. Yes.
1: Which, again, derived both out of the book that preceded it, the Johnstown Flood, because John Roebling helped Uh, Survey the route of the the railroads through uh, Johnstown. John Roebling, who designed the Brooklyn Bridge. (laughs) (coughs) Excuse me. And the Roeblings, uh, John Roebling, Washington Roebling, the builders of the bridge, uh, were all centered in Saxonville, north of Pittsburgh. That was their own town. And um, so I'd heard about the Roeblings growing up. And when my wife and I were first married, we lived in Brooklyn, on Brooklyn Heights, And that was the second book. And that, in many ways, uh, was the book that really launched me into a full-time career of writing. Because it was after the Johnstown flood, the success of the Johnstown flood, that I felt that it was possible that maybe I could make it on my own as a writer. So you gave up your day job? I gave up my day job. Took a lot of courage. And and particularly on the part of my wife. Uh, If she hadn't been as brave about it, I'm not sure I would have. We had five children, we had bills to
0: pay, and, and, um, well, it worked. And this one on the building of the Panama Canal? Yes, that's,
1: um, that was a horrendous effort, which almost did me in, because the more I went looking for material, research material, the more I found. And the research and the writing just seemed to go on and on and on. It took six years. But, um... It was what in the publishing business they call my breakaway book. It was a main selection of the Book of the Month Club, and it was a be- bestseller. And, and uh, Truman was my first big biography. Mornings on Horseback preceded it, a bi- biography in part of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. But this was the most ambitious project I ever took on. In fact, if I had known how much work would be involved in writing that book, I never would have undertaken it, so I'm glad I didn't know. Uh, it took ten years.
0: Have people, since this book came out, have people come to you with uh, Harry Truman stories that you wish All you could time. do a revised edition? All the
1: time. And they're one, almost, almost always wonderful. And they're almost always small uh, personal stories, little uh, revealing scenes uh, when they met him or Something happened that
0: he was part of. Then there is this one from a couple years ago about John Adams. Caused another bit of a splash.
1: And that was my first venture into the 18th century. And I loved it. I think the happiest years of my writing life have been the years writing this book, John Adams, and my new book, 1776, which is a companion work to John Adams. Because in John Adams, I wrote about the political drama of 1776 that took place in Philadelphia, in Independence Hall. But in 1776, I wanted to write about what else was going on in in that crucial uh, turning point year that made possible the ideals and ideas of of the Declaration being more than just words on paper.
0: Right, the Continental Congress doesn't play a real
1: big role in this book No, and that's not what that book's about. This book's about the, the war, the people fighting the war. And I feel very strongly that when we celebrate the 4th of July, when we celebrate 1776, we shouldn't just think of the Declaration of Independence or the, uh, the Broadway play 1776. That's part of the story, and obviously an immensely important part. But it's not the whole story. This, too, is something we should remember, what those men went through, what they did in the face of such adversity and such overwhelming odds against them.
0: Now, this book is also about 300 pages, which, as David McCullough books go, is fairly short. Well, why did you decide to, first of all, why did you decide to confine the book to 1776, and uh, why 300 pages?
1: I decided to it, com- confine it, I wouldn't say confine it, focus it on 1776 because that to me was the darkest time in our history and we are going through a dark time now and it's, And I have heard people say uh, or write in editorials and on the television that what we, particularly right after September 11th, that what we're going through is the darkest, most difficult and dangerous time we've ever been through. That's absolutely not so. What was... 1776 was I also didn't want to write a huge volume, I wanted to write a lean, taut book that expressed eloquence through the action, the deeds of what men did, actions very often speak louder than words and uh, it isn't a full scale life and times, which a biography is, I'd also been writing biography for 20 years with the books on Roosevelt, Truman and John Adams and I wanted to go back to writing history, because it's a different form. It's a different. It's a different. It's a different problem and a different opportunity. Here, you you don't have to just stick with one character all the way through. Some people said, "Oh, is it a biography of Washington?" No, not at all. It's about a lot of people, a lot of people you never heard of, and in many ways, they were the ones I wanted to write about most of all.
0: Now, in in writing. You, so much about Harry Truman and Theodore Roosevelt and John Adams and now George Washington. Have you figured out what leadership is? Sure,
1: in part. You can't, uh, you can't predict it. You can't read a resume and see well there it is. And it comes in all shapes and sizes. And it often doesn't emerge until there's a call for it. Uh, the times give rise to greatness. Uh, Surprising performances from people you wouldn't expect. Harry Truman. Who would have ever expected that Harry Truman would turn out to be one of the most important presidents in our history? If you looked at a resume of all the presidents, let's say, uh, you would have to conclude that Herbert Hoover was about as impressive a man as we ever elected. He He had a distinguished career and had shown himself to be a superb leader again and again. But when he became president, he was the wrong kind of man for the times. And uh, that's been true of of many presidents. Now, it's sometimes said by historians and biographers that all of our great presidents, our great leaders, have been those who were president in times of crisis, which is largely true. But there's there's at least one very obvious uh, exception to the rule, and that was Theodore Roosevelt. There was no national crisis during his presidency, none whatever. Some thought maybe he was the crisis, but, uh, but he, he was just a dynamo of ideas and energy and purpose. The only reason to have power, he said, is to get things done. And the country was in a, in a kind of... Stage in, the, in its development at that point, where that's exactly what was needed. Where it was exactly the spirit of the times. All the horrors and the and the uh, pessimistic conclusions that would give rise come to the fore after uh, World War One. That was all over the horizon, still to come. Was very progress, optimism. All was the. They were. It was the creed of the day. Um, Franklin Roosevelt sort of a dilettante before he became president, not a very impressive governor, not a very impressive fellow, who was in a wheelchair. But um, he led us through of the two, two of the worst crises of the century, uh, the, of the 20th century, the Depression and the, and the Second World War. magnificent leader with a magnificent capacity to use the language to inspire people.
0: Is there... Now, you are, uh, rightly or wrongly, credited with uh, helping the, the stars of John Adams and Harry Truman rise <coughs> in their perception of, as historical figures. Are there other presidents who, who deserve that kind of treatment, whose stars should be higher up the horizon than they are?
1: Well, i say, yes, there are other Americans who became president who deserve to be better known. Not because they were necessarily a great president. Um... John Quincy Adams comes right to mind. Really, one of the most remarkable Americans ever. Um, I think if you could give all the presidents an IQ test, he would he would probably come in first, even ahead of his father. Um, I think that Gerald Ford is a much more important figure than we realize. Gerald Ford's presidency was extremely eventful presidency, and I though I was appalled at the time when he pardoned Nixon. In retrospect, I, knew, I now feel he did a very brave and politically, for him, disadvantageous uh, act in, in uh, pardoning Nixon. I think it was a true profile and courage. And uh, he's he's an intelligent man. He's he's got balance. He's uh, rock solid, uh, good middle American, and and deserves better, more credit than he has.
0: You, you describe in your book, you describe George Washington, and you talk about him as uh, being a commanding presence six feet, two inches tall, weighing perhaps 190 pounds. His hair was reddish-brown. The face was largely unlined but freckled and sun-beaten and slightly scarred by smallpox. A few defective teeth were apparent when he smiled. The surprise there is that Washington's smiling. But well, well we shouldn't think of Washington
1: as a grim man. He did smile. And particularly in, in moments of relaxation with his officers sitting around a table uh, after dinner, cracking nuts, drinking uh, wine. He liked a good story. He liked a good joke. Uh, he, was, uh, he was not an arrogant or, a, or a, a severe man. He did not believe that officers should be too friendly with men in the ranks. He, he, did, he told his officers there should be a distance but when he was with his officers, he could be a very genial fellow. If you could talk to him, what would you ask him? Why his wife, why Martha Washington, destroyed all their letters? She destroyed every letter he wrote to her, except a couple of which she stuffed into a book and forgot where they were. They've survived, and uh, he destroyed the letter. She destroyed the letters she wrote to him. I'd like to know why she did that you have another book in the
0: works? Not yet. This is the book we've been talking about, 1776, and we've been talking to his author, David McCullough. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.